All right, so we're going to begin in Matthew 21 this morning. So for those of you that have been with us, we've been in the Gospel of Luke. Um, I know some of you guys have been listening online. That's awesome, right? So you guys are, are part of it, even from California. But for those, I have to give a shout out. The Vias are here from California. How fun is that, everyone? Come on. That's right. So um, it's, it's fun having you guys here. But, you know, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke and we saw that, well, Luke was written by a Gentile, right? By Luke, the physician. And it was to show that he was the savior to, to come to seek to save those that, was, that were lost. Luke 19.10 tells us that. That's the theme of the book of Luke. Well, today with the triumphal entry, with it being Palm Sunday, I figured we would take a break from Luke and we'd go over to Matthew, because Matthew's written by a Jew, to show the Jews that Jesus is indeed the coming Messiah. He is the Messiah, the savior of the world. And so I figured it would be cool to just take a break from Luke, be in Matthew. So we'll be at Matthew 21. And if you're there, say I'm there. Not yet. All right, cool. That's all right. I like that. That's why we do that. Make sure everyone's on the same page. All right. And I am in the New King James Version this morning. If you wanted a copy that, we have some copies over on the stand over there. Um, I know sometimes that can be confusing if you're following a different translation, but that's just the preferred uh, translation we use. But all right, Matthew 21. If you're there, say I'm there. All right. Now that's, that's better. All right. Let's look at the first few verses here. It says, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And so that's where we're going to pause for a second. We want to get some setting of what's happening here. Um, verse one shows us that Jesus is beginning his final approach into Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. Now we know, obviously, if you read the gospel, Jesus this isn't going to be the last appearance of Jesus in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. But this is his last time going in as a hundred percent human man, right? Pre-glorified, pre Calvary. But as he's approaching, he starts giving instruction to the disciples. And you see, there's a map. I think Matt has it here for us. Maybe there we go. So I want to give a map because I feel like sometimes we throw city names out there. Like any of us really know where these cities are. Maybe if we've been to Israel, I'm like, I love being up here as a teacher. And I'm like, you know, it's right near Bethany. I'm like, I don't know where Bethany is. So here's a, here's a map. And you have Bethany down there. That's where Jesus started the day. Right. And they work up to Bethpage. And at Bethpage right there, that's where he stops them, right? And he's, it says that he sends two disciples um, to, go, to go start this, this triumphal entry. And so it's important because Jesus has walked a long way already, right? He doesn't need a donkey because he's weary. He doesn't need a donkey because he's tired or lazy or something. He needs a donkey because he knows he's going to fulfill so much heavy prophecy from the Bible to prove that he is the Messiah. See, if he just walks into town... There is still Zechariah 9.9 that's, that's unfulfilled. Psalm 118 isn't the way it's supposed to be. All these things, and Jesus knows this. But I love it because the disciples, they don't really know what's happening. <laughs> this is, I think, pretty typical of the Jesus-disciple relationship to some level. You know that Jesus is doing something right and true, but you're not real sure where your place is in it, but you just obey whatever he tells you, Right? And so it's interesting. He stops at this, pl this place called Bethpage. Bethpage means the house of unripe figs. I think that's really interesting 
because Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. And see, even though he comes into worship and praise, we know what happens on Friday. He's rejected. He's killed and crucified. And see, the hearts of Jerusalem, they weren't ripe. They weren't ready to receive Jesus in all sincerity and fullness. There was a portion of believers. We know that. But for the most part, generally speaking, they didn't know Jesus personally, and therefore they missed him and they rejected him. But I just think about that, and I think, man, Jesus, how would you go and continue from Bethpage into, the, into that temple? Aren't you terrified of what lies ahead? Aren't you just so concerned? I mean, remember, he's still, he's, he's human. He's got the limitations of humanity upon him at this point. He knows fear. God doesn't, doesn't experience fear, but Jesus in the flesh, he's going to experience fear. We know that upon the cross, right? When he cries out, Lord, why have you forsaken me? He feels the heaviness of that moment, but yet he still continues in and obeys the command of the father. And it's just so encouraging to us. Jesus has set the perfect example. Obey the things that, the, that God tells us to do. And God will be glorified and we'll be blessed in the process. Amen. And so I know we, we live that on a much smaller level. We aren't going to a cross to bring humanity into salvation. <laughs> Praise God, because none of us are fitting for that. But the idea here is that Jesus knew that he had to be lifted up and crucified for us to be saved. Jesus said in John 3, 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man, speaking of himself, be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in that language, he's saying lifted up meant crucifixion. He was saying, I must be crucified. And that was in John three. That's the beginning of his ministry. He knew what he was coming for. And you say, well, why would you do that? The, the, the shame, the pain of the cross, right? But Hebrews 12, two gives us insight to that, right? It says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He looked beyond the cross to the resurrection, to eternity, that we could be brought in because he is the Messiah. He is the perfect Passover lamb, right? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he had to do this Palm Sunday action to be that fitting Messiah, to be that suffering Messiah, as Isaiah 53 talked about. So he starts, to, he basically comes in and says, I'm gonna, I have to do this. He's very deliberate, right? The instruction he gives to his disciples he says, hey, you guys are going to go to this place. Um, I think it's interesting. He says, you're going to go to this village opposite of us. It's like a nameless village. He sends two disciples. We don't know who the disciples are in any of the gospels. I think the point of this is that we know that Jesus is the focus of all of this. It's not about the disciples. It's not about the city or the place that the resources are coming from. This is service unto the Lord, right? No one should know our name when we serve the Lord Jesus. Everyone should know it's about Jesus. But I do think it's interesting. He sends out two, two of them. He has 12 disciples, right? 12 apostles. He only sends out two. I think that's kind of interesting because sometimes we all feel like we should be in every job of the Lord. Like, I don't know if you get that, but like, I know I look at the bias because I know at, at Pomona Valley, it's like you guys are there every service, just like I was always at every service. I felt like I had to be doing something all the time. There's times where the Lord says, this isn't for you. This is for this group. You have something else to do. The other 10 stayed with Jesus. I don't know what they did, but they had something to do, I'm sure. But those two that went away, Jesus says, hey, I have a job for you guys to do, but it's still not about you. We won't even mention your names. It's about me and, my, and the plan to glorify God. Does that make sense? So I think that's pretty interesting as he sends them out. 
But it's wild because he tells them, right? He says, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. This is like kind of vague, right? Because you're like, what are we doing, dude? We're walking along the the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And you want us to like stop and go get a donkey. We only have a couple more miles, right? And so there's this whole idea of Jesus just gives them. He says, go. And immediately you'll find this thing. And when you get there, if anyone gives you any issue, tell them that I sent you. I think this is big because Jesus so often will call us to do things that we don't fully understand. But again, as we obey the voice of the Lord. You remember last week in Luke chapter five with Peter, right? Peter, Peter's told, hey, go out and throw your net. Like go out into the deep, throw your net over and you're going to get a catch. Jesus never said, maybe we'll get a catch or, Hey, let me give you specific directions and how this is going to work. I'm going to call all the fish of the ocean into your net. And I get like, Peter's like, look at, we've toiled all night. We're exhausted. Are you sure about this? It's kind of like his attitude initially. It's a little bit of unbelief, right? Because after the miracle, he comes to Jesus like, depart from me. I'm wicked, man. I should have just listened to you from the get go. And see right here, Jesus is saying, just go do these things. I know that it may not make sense right now, but you are going to be blessed as you obey because you're going to participate in this humongous, awesome messianic prophecy. Like really think about that. Like these guys, if they don't obey, I mean, they don't get to participate in this thing that was 550 years. They were waiting for this to happen since it was prophesied by Zechariah. But because they trust the word of the Lord, they go. And really at the end of the day, you got to think we're going to go and rely on Jesus' lordship. Because Jesus said, if you get there and there's opposition, just tell them you're with me and everything's going to be okay. I love that because they will reach some opposition at some point. But Jesus says, look, I'm not saying it's going to be necessarily the easiest thing. I'm not going to even give you all the details, but I will be with you. And as you rely on my word and rely on my name, it'll all come to fruition. And so as I look at that, I go, man, that's what we need in our life, right? (laughs) To go out in that full authority of King Jesus. To go out and say, Lord, wherever you may call me, however you may call me, I can trust that you're going to bring it to fruition because your word has promised it. I mean, think about that. These guys are like, all right, Jesus told us, and it's been prophesied for hundreds of years. I think this is going to be successful, right? Like, There's got to be some level of like, all right, we can trust. Let's go do it. And see, Matthew explains that. Look at verse four and five. It says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Matthew starts explaining here the reason this is happening. Remember, Matthew's writing after the fact. He's not writing in the moment. Matthew is looking back on all this stuff because he was there for the situation. He was there as they got sent out. I don't know if he was one of the two that got sent, but he was there. Later, when he puts it all together, he says, this was all being done to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. That's what's being quoted right here. When it talks about to behold your king who's coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey. And see, again, that, that would be for Matthew to look back on that and go, man, why did we ever doubt the Lord? This was prophesied 550 years. Jesus told us he's proven that he can be trusted. And as he looked back, he said, man, what a blessing that we got to participate in Zechariah 9.9. <laughs> Like in a weird way, their lives were written about. It was all about Jesus, but they got to be blessed by participating with Jesus. 
Like how many times we get blessed because Jesus is the one who gets glorified as we live unto him. But we're blessed for it, right? Like as we trust him and go out, it's like, man, who are we to be involved with the most high king? I'm a sinner, right? We are all sinners that fell short of the glory of God. But because of Jesus's compassion, his heart to draw us in and to use us, he says, man, I'm going to allow you guys to participate in this thing. Jesus could have got his own donkey, right? <laughs> Jesus could have probably created a donkey out of nothing. I don't know. Like how that, how's that even work? But he goes, I want you guys to go and do like real practical, natural things, but they're going to be part of something so spiritually huge. And that's our life as believers. We go from place to place, like seeking the Lord. And when we get there, the Lord uses it for his glory and we get blessed for it. Amen. And so it's interesting because Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9, but he kind of just pauses because 9.9 and 9.10 in the book of Zechariah, they kind of flow like one sentence. And see, Zechariah 9.10 says, speaking of the Messiah, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow, or battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So if you read Zechariah 9, 9 and 9, 10, you go, okay, the king's coming on a, on a donkey, but he's going to like take away all the, the, the war. He's going to take away all of the swords and the bows and the horses, the war horses. He's going to do away with all that, right? Well, the thing is, Matthew pauses at the end of 9, 9, because Jesus didn't come the first time to conquer, to conquer Rome. See, the people expected the Messiah to come and overthrow their, their physical enemy. So Matthew's looking back on it and going, oh, I understand now. We all thought the Messiah was coming to just cut people down. He says, no, the Messiah is coming lowly on the back of a donkey to represent two things. First of all, that Jesus is a humble, lowly, accessible king. He's not up on this big old high horse, literally speaking, right? He's on this little, this, this donkey, this mule or whatever. It's probably the size of like Beethoven, the dog, right? It's like a big dog, right? He's, he comes right in and is. Honestly, the Roman people and the Jews that expected a conquering king, when they saw that donkey, they probably looked at that and thought, wait a minute, this is our king, right? The Romans are probably like, that's the guy we're worried about. Like when we win things, we come in on the biggest horse we can find, right? But also we know that David, we were looking at this in first Kings one the other night, David had a mule that spoke of a time of peace. And he told Solomon, a man of peace to ride that mule in as he was proclaimed king. And see, Jesus comes in as the Prince of Peace. He's coming to sacrifice himself for our sins. So he came the first time to bring peace between man and God, as Romans 5, 1 says. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And see, without Jesus coming, if Jesus came and overthrew Rome, what good does that do for us as sinners? We still go to hell, <laughs> Great. The Jews have like however long they live on earth to be like exalted. But he says, that's not why I came. You guys have created an agenda and you think I need to fit your agenda, but you're going to miss me because you're blinded by your agenda. And see, as Jesus comes in to say, I'm bringing peace, man, we know that this is the reality of all of this is that someday he is coming on that big horse. Right. Revelation 1911. It says, now I say heaven or I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Man, Jesus is coming on that horse. But see, the Jews that were there, the people that were there, they may have missed him because they were looking for this 
this thing that really glorified themselves and exalted themselves. They said, I want Jesus to come and do my will. And Jesus says, I'm coming to do something you know nothing about. I'm coming to deliver mankind from their sins, to be the propitiation for their sins. And so do we understand that with Zechariah 9.9 and how that meets now? There's a reason. So here's the cool thing. Zechariah 9.9 has been fulfilled. That's what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9.10 has not been fulfilled yet. He's going to come. When he comes on that horse and establishes his millennial kingdom, then we will see he will put an end to war. He will bring peace to the earth. So there's this big old thousand, two thousand year comma between Zechariah 9, 9 and Zechariah 9, 10. So does that make sense now? So that's what Matthew is alluding to here. But again, he's writing to Jews and everyone that was a Jew understood that Zechariah 9 was a messianic section. So Matthew's trying to tell them, dude, Jesus is the Messiah. And just as a side note, I was looking up last night because I'm not, I'm not Jewish. I don't know if anyone in here is. I never practiced Judaism. But I looked up last night out of curiosity, like, you got to think we're posting things about Palm Sunday and Jesus being Messiah, right? And I was like, I wonder what Jews, the Jewish people think of us as we celebrate this. And so I just looked up, like, why have they rejected Jesus? And it's interesting. They just said, basically, no, the Jesus that came, he didn't rebuild the temple. He didn't come and deliver us. We're waiting for the one that will rebuild our temple and deliver us. And it gave me chills, right? Because Revelation, Daniel 9, talks about someone's going to walk in. The Antichrist is going to show up and say, hey, I'll build your temple for you. Just serve me. I'm with you. And they're going to receive him. That's why he's the Antichrist. He's, the in, he's the, in the place of Christ. He's the fake Christ. They're going to embrace him. And it's crazy because I'm reading things right now. They're excited because there's talk of the temple. They have blueprints. They're going to build a temple soon. When Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem, they said, man, this is the best time. We should build the temple now. And the big thing is the Dome of the Rock. It's like the Muslim Islamic center. It's right on the spot where they believe the temple was. Last week, those people came out and said, this site really isn't that important to us. Like what? Like the, the, the Muslims don't believe that site is that important anymore? This is setting up for someone to come and say, hey, I have a good peace agreement. Let us take the dome. Let us make it our temple. And then we'll, we'll sit, make this the center of Jewish worship. And whoever does that, they're going to be seen as the Messiah. And whoever that is, it's the Antichrist. We're close. We're really close to Zechariah 9.10, I believe. It's seen seven years after, that, after all that begins, we're going to see Jesus come. We will be with him. Though. That's the good news. <laughs> hey, man, we ain't going to be here for that action. I can solidly argue that for you, okay? But the rapture happens before that. But how exciting to know that this is so close. I mean, Israel wasn't even a nation 70-something years ago, right? 80 years ago, wasn't even a nation. They came back as a nation, and all this stuff has happened recently. If we taught this study 100 years ago, we'd be so confused about how this is going to play out. But here we are, right? So just an encouragement, man, be ready for the Lord to come back. And so verse 6, look what the, it says. It says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. I just love that simple statement of obedience. Because Jesus commanded them to do something, and they weren't real sure what it was. Now, they knew they had to go get a donkey, but they didn't know at the time how it played into things. John 12, 16 says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So initially, they're like, dude, we don't know what we're doing, but we know that Jesus can be trusted. So if he tells us to go like, I don't know, 
get a temple tax by fishing and pulling a coin out of the mouth of a fish like he told them to do. They're like, that's weird, but we'll go do it. And Jesus did it. Go feed the 5,000 people with a couple fish and some, some pita bread, right? And they're like, that sounds weird. Jesus did it. Throw your net over the boat and you'll get the biggest catch you've ever had. It'll sink both the boats. They're like, we don't know. Jesus did it. So as you obey the voice of the Lord, great things are going to come out of that. And see here, even though they didn't know what was happening, they just go and do it. And remember, Jesus said, if anyone questions you, just tell them that I sent you, right? We don't know if this was prearranged or not, if Jesus like called in favors to people. Like, I don't know if he called them and said, hey, man, it's Jesus. Yo, what's up, dude? Hey, get, get, a, get a donkey ready, okay? I don't, I don't know. Jesus is Lord. He can do it however he wants. You can't be dogmatic on how that works out. But we know this. The disciples did not know how, how it was going to play out. But he told them, if anyone opposes you, just tell them I have need of it. And sure enough, it tells us in Mark 11, 5 through 6, it says they met some opposition. It says, but some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go with the colt. <laughs> so they got there and the guy's like, what are you doing? Guys, you can't just untie my donkey. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 this is for the Lord. They're like, go for it. And they're like, this is weird, right? <laughs> like, imagine the disciples. And then it tells us in Luke 19, 34, that they simply responded with Jesus' words saying, the Lord has need of him. So here's what I take from this. Good disciples go out in faith, prepared for opposition, and are equipped with the word of God. They went out not knowing what was there. They reached opposition and they relied upon Jesus' words and it all came to fruition. Like, how cool is that? Like, it's so simple. It doesn't change from, what year is it, 2021? Yeah, 2021 to the year 32. <laughs> it doesn't change. Just trust the Lord, quote the Lord, and man, he's going to have his way and we'll be blessed for it. Amen? And so that's the instructions given. Look at verse 7. The procession begins, the procession of the triumphal entry. It says, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So here's this prophesied procession that begins. Remember, Zechariah 9.9. You have this, this proclaimed king riding in on the back of a donkey. And so as he's coming into town, before he even gets on the thing, it's very lowly, right? Like it says they took their, their, like their clothes off and made a saddle for him. This is like the king of kings. And he doesn't have a gold-plated saddle. <laughs> he doesn't have a diamond jewel-encrusted saddle. He has some disciples that go like, hey, dude, I have an extra tunic. Can I throw that on there for you? And they like make this like, again, small horse, big dog thing that he's riding with clothes on it. <laughs> You're like, this is, doesn't look very triumphant, right? Like just generally speaking. But the offering that they give is like, dude, whatever we have, we'll give unto Jesus. All they had with them, right? Jesus told them what to take, remember? And I believe it's in Mark where he tells them very specifically. He's like, take, take your staff, take two tunics, right? Like, do the, here, here's a tunic. And if you have two tunics, give it to someone that's in need, right? Remember, he told them that. They took their tunic, their, their coverings. They threw them on, the, on the, the donkey. And they're saying, this is all we have, Jesus, but we're going to take anything we have and give it unto you as worship and praise. And I think there's just something so basic like that. I think sometimes I go, what do I possibly have? <laughs> to give the Lord. I don't have millions of dollars to give to his, his purposes, right? I don't have like great deep intellect or anything. What do I have? I have my life. So wherever I'm at, whatever I do for a living, whatever I do for, and like 
any pastime, everything should just be committed unto him. And see, as the disciples do this and they throw their tunics on this thing, the people that are around you, they see what's happening. And it's interesting. They follow the lead, right? So the disciples commit to worshiping Jesus and it's contagious. There's people around. They're coming in for Passover. Remember, that's why everyone's traveling in. Passover is coming up. So there's millions of people coming in, pilgriming from all kinds of different areas. And as they're coming in, they're like, oh, dude, those people are putting that. They're putting Jesus of Nazareth on a donkey. This might be it. This might be Zechariah. So they start throwing their stuff, right? And they're just so hoping for a reigning Messiah to overthrow Rome. They'll take probably anyone. I mean, any of us could have shown up at, the, at that time. And maybe the hope was just like they just wanted something to hope in. And so they see Jesus. The disciples are doing it in true, sincere worship. I believe people see it. And they're like, dude, I'll be part of this. This looks cool. Like this is something that we need as a nation. And so they start throwing their stuff on the road for Jesus to walk along, almost like a, I don't know, like a red carpet or something. They throw their, tu their, their tunics down, their cloaks. And as they do that, they're, they're just basically, like scripture said, this happened when Elisha had anointed Jehu as king. The people threw down their jackets and made a way for him to approach and they proclaimed him as king. So we know this was like an expression of saying, hey, you are our king. And then they start cutting down palm branches. And to us, it's like weird. They're gardening now, right? Like, what is this? So they're cutting these down because those palm branches, those represent victory, right? As they take these things, they're waving them. We see in Revelation 7, the multitude of those that were slain during the tribulation, those that eventually they didn't initially believe in Christ when the rapture happened, but during the tribulation, they put their faith in Jesus and they were martyred for their faith. They're there in heaven before the throne of God with palm branches saying, they actually say in here, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So before Jesus, they're calling him the lamb in heaven. They say that you're the one that, the, that belongs all, like salvation belongs to you. You're the saving king. You're the saving lamb. And see all that comes together, palm branches, victory, the cloaks and the, and the tunics, it's, it's you're our king. So you basically put those together. You're our victorious king, Lord Jesus. That's what's being proclaimed here. We read it and we're like, that's very weird to us. We wouldn't do that today, right? The president came through town. I don't care who the president is, by the way, but whoever he is, we wouldn't take our, our, our cloaks and our, our palm branches, right? Whatever side of the aisle you stand on, okay? That would be a weird thing to do. But many people gather in the streets, right? And they'll stand in there, plot, oh, I saw the limousine. I saw the thing, right? Like it's a big deal. This is their way of expressing like, man, we're, we're in some form of allegiance with the idea of this king. But see, I think this is the thing, though, is that many are proclaiming to be the king. Look at verse 9. It says, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so this is awesome because the people are actually proclaiming Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. So Jesus is fulfilling a messianic prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. The people are crying out a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. So in this one action, Jesus is just fulfilling prophecy, right? Proving that he is that one. At the very least, he's doing a great job to imitate it. If he's not the one, how do you even get the people unprovoked? to cry out the very things they're supposed to say. These are the things to me that go, this is the Lord, man. This is the King. Because an imposter wouldn't get all the people, I think, to say perfectly the things that are in Psalm 118. But as they proclaim this, 
it's interesting. They, they believe that he is that son of David, right? They're saying that they're saying Hosanna, which means save now, right? We sang it this morning, right? The idea is save now, Lord Jesus. You are the salvation. It says you're the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So the problem with this, though, is they believe that the son of David was that one that was going to conquer and reign, right? So they don't know yet what's going to happen on Friday of that week. Right now, they think, cool, he's coming in because he's going to cut all Rome off. <laughs> this is great. So they're singing it, but they don't understand what's actually happening. I think this is, this is big, and that's how we get to the point of Jesus being rejected. Because, again, they had their agenda in mind and not a personal understanding of who Jesus was. And we look at this, and, and they're singing out with success and joy and prosperity. They're singing about that as they sing Hosanna. And here's the important thing, whether they knew it or not, Jesus was accepting their worship. This is huge. Because if Jesus is just a good servant, the anointed servant of, of the Lord and not God, at this point, he's sinning if he receives the glory of God, the worship of God. Remember anytime someone bows to an angel in the Bible, the angel always says, get, get up. I, I, I can't do that. You don't worship me. Worship God alone. Jesus receives this worship. So if he's not God, he's now a sinner. He's now a blasphemer. And for him to receive it, this is huge because he never received public worship, like public worship. He, there were times when people were healed and they would worship him. But generally speaking, he came into Jerusalem and he's allowing them to worship him. This is the first time in scripture we're going to see that. And this is Jesus knowing what he's doing. He's saying, I am here to accept the worship because I am the anointed king of Israel. I am the king who takes away like all of the enemy of sin and death. But the people thought he was there to deliver from Rome. Again, I don't mean to overdo that, but we got to remember this is the mindset. How bad can agendas be, right? When we start to think that God has to serve our will, we miss the whole purpose of Jesus. And see, in this section, it says that, that they were proclaiming Psalm 118, but it's interesting because Psalm 118, 22, it goes on to say about the Messiah, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And see, as they're crying out, part of Psalm 118, which the whole thing's prophetic, right, about the Messiah, five days later on Friday, they're going to fulfill 118.22. They're going to they're gonna reject Jesus. He's going to be crucified. The whole week is just playing out, filling out prophecy, things they never quite understood. They weren't sure if there were two Messiahs, maybe a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. Some have said, well, maybe Jesus came and was a suffering Messiah, but he's not our saving Messiah. See, they've sold him short on who he is. They didn't have a full understanding of who he is. They rejected that chief cornerstone. And look at verse 10 and 11. It says, and when they had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so this is interesting because it says the whole city was moved. The word in the Greek is, is, is sio, like a, like a, like a seismic, right? Like when you have like a big earthquake, right? It's moving. It's shaking. People are like, dude, this is weird. We've never had a Passover like this where a guy came in on a donkey. We didn't expect him to be on a donkey, even though it said he should be on a donkey. Shows you how they didn't quite understand scripture, right? But they see this and people are starting to whisper, dude, this is this Jesus of Nazareth. He's on the donkey. It tells us, I believe it is in, um, let me get the verse for you. John 12, 17, the people that answered the question of who he is, they had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. 
So the idea is these people came from Galilee and they were coming in for the Passover. The people in Jerusalem hadn't seen Jesus do great works because they didn't have faith. In Galilee, there was tons of faith and there were tons of works. We know that Jesus resides where faith abides, right? Like Jesus is going to be in the midst of faith. When we believe on him, we're going to see him move all the time. But when you don't believe upon Jesus, you chalk everything up to coincidence, to good luck, to the karma, I don't know, whatever. So Jerusalem, they're like, who is this guy? But the people that saw him raise Lazarus were like, dude, this guy might be it. We saw him raise a dead man from the grave. And he was dead more than, he was dead a full three days. Like in their culture, that was official. Maybe on day two, a guy could like resuscitate. <laughs> but by day three, that was like, it's funny. I think it's the King James version. When, when Jesus says to bring Lazarus out, they're like, dude, he's going to stink us, is what they say. <laughs> like he's dead. Like you don't want this. And he says, you know, come out Lazarus. He calls him by name because if he doesn't call him by name, everybody's going to come out because he's, he's got power over death. And so he says, come out Lazarus. Lazarus comes walking out. And so the people saw that. Now they're in Jerusalem a little while later for Passover. He's riding on the back of a donkey. They're like, dude, this is a big deal. Now, again, they're still thinking though, if he can raise Lazarus, he can overthrow Rome. They're still thinking the wrong things, but I love Jesus's heart. He doesn't say, you know, I'm not going to die for these people because they're confused. <laughs> he says, I'm going to go die. And then after I'm glorified, they'll understand. And see, that's what it says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6. It says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom that should be testified of in due time. So even if you don't understand it, yet you, when you understand it, it all makes sense. In due time, it comes together that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's going to be the case for Israel when they see him return at the end of the tribulation, deliver him when he shows up on that white horse. Romans eleven twenty six tells us for the most part, Israel will put their faith in Jesus at that time. And they'll run and he'll deliver them. He'll overthrow the Antichrist, overthrow Satan. He'll do all that. In one sentence, the enemy is destroyed by Jesus. But that couldn't happen until salvation was taken care of. So Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. To ride on that cult that says, man, I'm coming in peace. I'm the Prince of Peace to bring peace between man and God. Amen? And see, as he's doing that, I think it's so interesting because they, they, the people are like, who is this? They don't know who Jesus is. And it's a bummer because you're in the capital of Judaism. Like you're in Jerusalem where the temple is. They should have known more than anyone who this guy was. But they've rejected him over and over and over. And then the people that do know him, it is kind of interesting. And I think that's why John 12 tells us they were the people that saw Lazarus get raised. It's kind of an, a, a not very personal testimony of who Jesus is. They say that this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. If you take that sentence, it's correct in some things. Like, yeah, his name's Jesus, but he's much more than a prophet. He's the king of kings. He's the son of God. If you knew that, you would know he's bigger than Elijah. He's bigger than Elisha. He's bigger than Zechariah. He's bigger than the prophets. So that's undercutting who Jesus was. It also said that he's from Nazareth in Ga of Galilee. Jesus actually left Nazareth because they rejected him. He went and lived in Capernaum, remember? Like he actually wasn't really, even though his family lived in Nazareth, we even call him like Nazarene, right? It's like, that's kind of a bummer because he didn't like Nazareth. He's like, dude, you guys don't believe in me. He loved them, but he didn't seem to like them. He went to Capernaum. And then it says he's like of Galilee and of Nazareth. He wasn't even born there. He's born in Bethlehem. So Jesus, if you knew the story of Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem. He left Nazareth because they did not receive him in faith. He went to Capernaum and he's much greater than a prophet. 
But those statements, they're trying. They're really trying to know Jesus, I think, in some form of what they could know. But they just don't even fathom the greatness of Jesus Christ yet. And see, it's interesting because they're all stirred. They're all moved like an earthquake. But being moved is not being transformed. Emotionalism, right? How many times we have a good day at church and now we're like the best Christian ever, but like Monday comes. And we're like, nah, that was just yesterday. It was emotional. It was an experience. But that's what these guys are, like, like, big deal. By Friday, they're going to crucify him. Like it wasn't changing for everybody. I'm not saying for all. We know that there were some that believed on Jesus. It's just like today. Like Jesus says, the road is narrow, right? We're not going to be bumping elbows on the way to heaven. It's not like everyone's going because they do not diligently seek to know who Jesus truly is. And it's unfortunate, but our job is to get out there and tell everyone who Jesus is. Amen. And so Jesus here, he's proclaiming himself. And really, that's the end of the triumphal entry right there. I will tell you that even the mode that was prescribed in Zechariah 9.9, a donkey, he wrote on that. Psalm 118 said, this is what will be said when he comes in. It was said out loud by the people. The last thing is Daniel 9, right? There's 70 weeks of Daniel. We won't get all into this, but it basically said this. There is a certain amount of years from the time that Artaxerxes gives a decree to rebuild the walls and city of Jerusalem. From when he does that to the day that the Messiah shows up in Jerusalem, I want to say it's 483 years, right? Something like that, right? Jose, Jose, yeah, I know you got me, dude. Yeah, 483 years. So it actually tells us if we do the math, there's this guy named Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and he did like all this Bible math, like way smarter than anything I could handle. But he, he was like based on the calendars used at the time, the decree was given, given by Artaxerxes, March 14th, 445. That brings us to April 6, 32 AD that Jesus entered like into Jerusalem. The Messiah had to come on that day to the praises of Psalm 118 on the back of a donkey, like Zechariah 9.9 says. He walked in, he rode in on the perfect day at the perfect time, receiving the perfect praise, and still there was doubt. The religious leaders, the people, he's in Jerusalem. It's not like, again, he's not in Nazareth. He's in Jerusalem. The people that are supposed to know missed him. That speaks to my heart because I'm like, man, I hope I'm not missing Jesus as I'm teaching. I hope I'm not missing Jesus as I go to church. I hope I'm not missing Jesus as I'm serving. Man, may my heart be right before him, right? May I know that in trueness, in spirit and truth, that I'm serving the Lord Jesus, King Jesus. And so it's interesting. The last thing, I'm going to touch it real quick. It's interesting because that really touches all of the triumphal entry. But Matthew goes from 12 to 17. This is the last section we're going to look at. He talks about the cleansing of the temple. So I feel like what we see is the instruction in the first six verses, the procession, verse 7 through, through 11. Now we're going to see correction, verses 12 through 17. It says, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Matthew makes it seem that Jesus went right from the triumphal entry into the temple, right? The way that's written. We actually know from the other gospels, it makes more sense. This is probably Monday morning. So I'm kind of taking some liberties by teaching Monday, Monday morning stuff on Sunday, Palm Sunday. But I feel like it's really important to know this because we just talked about the religious leaders missing Jesus, right? I think it's no coincidence that Matthew wants to tie these two events so closely together. He says, the reason they miss Jesus 
is because they were abusing the whole system of religion. Jesus comes in to the temple and he's tipping over tables because people are, are doing just wicked things. They're selling, they're selling things at exorbitant prices, like 15% um, taxes for coming in and just getting the right money to use in the temple, right? They had temple money. So if you wanted to come to church, it would be like going to the church bookstore and going, hey, I want to buy. Oh, we don't take money, but you can get our special like, like Calvary dollars, right? And it's a 15% markup. Then you can buy the book. Like that would be really like ridiculous. How much more when we're talking about buying the sacrifices that were prescribed in the word of God to cleanse from sin, right? To, that pointed towards the cleansing of sin. They would go in and there were doves. It mentions doves. I think that's interesting because doves are always a sign of like peace and of the Holy Spirit, right? It's almost like Jesus like, this is the most blasphemous thing. You're selling these doves that are supposed to represent peace and spirit. And you're, you're just gouging people. It's exhortation, right? This is, this is, it's extortion. You're stealing from the people. And so he takes that. And I think that's why it's specifically the doves, right? The poor dove guy, right? He always gets mentioned, but it throws the doves, the dove seats over, like releasing the doves probably into the air, right? It's just chaos in the place, right? I don't know if you have the action Bible, but that's what I, I remember the dove being very prominent in the picture. It's like flying away all scared of Jesus, right? And he's just tipping things over. He's just like, man, this is not what this is ever about. It was never about you receiving power, speaking to the religious leaders. It was never about you making money and being prosperous. This is absolutely wrong what's happening here. And it's interesting because when Jesus came originally in John chapter two, it said he cleansed the temple as one of his very first things he did in Jerusalem at the beginning of his ministry. And at that time he gave them a warning. He said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So he gave a warning three years prior. He said, don't do this. Now he's back three years later and it's worse than ever. See, Jesus will give you conviction and say, hey, don't do these things. Listen to my voice. Obey my voice. You'll be blessed for it. Just like the disciples, right? They didn't obey his voice. Three years later, he's like, that's it. And what does he do here? He tells them. He doesn't give them a warning this time. He says flat out, you have made it a den of thieves. In other words, you're a bunch of thieves. You live here. You're cheating people. He's quoting two different passages here, right? Jeremiah 7, 11 called the temple a den of thieves because the people at the time, they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in the temple. And Jeremiah said, man, that place is, is just crooked. You're stealing the glory of God and the Lord's going to correct you for this. And with this idea of it should be a house of prayer, that actually comes from, uh, from Isaiah 56, 7. And see, the idea was we come here to be drawn into the Lord but the men that were there, they actually put up a wall between man and God, right? Because now you're coming and you can't even, if you didn't have the right money, you can't sacrifice to God. If you don't have the right connection, you can't get the thing you need. Like they made it hard for people to actually obey the voice of the Lord. And Jesus says, this is not what this is about. I came to be accessible because God desires man to be mediated with him, to be joined together with him. And while they're creating this big old gap, Jesus is going to bridge the gap. Amen. And look at how it ends. Look at 14 through 17. It says, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes, or I'm sorry, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany 
and he lodged there. So while these men had been running a temple that was so corrupt and broken, Jesus comes in, fulfills all that prophecy, proving that he's Messiah, right? I believe proves it. Then goes into the temple and basically says, this is my house. It's my father's house. I'm going to show up by correcting you guys. Like I have the authority to cleanse this place. And if anyone is still confused, like, oh man, who is this guy to do this? He starts healing the blind and the lame. Isaiah 35, five through six spoke of the, of the coming Messiah. It said, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap, leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing praise. See, that spoke of when the Messiah would come. No one did these things until Jesus shows up. He's in the temple. He's come in perfectly prophesied, cleansed the temple. Now he's even healing people. And the religious leaders, even when they saw these wonderful things, it says Matthew writes, they were indignant. They were angry. How sad that we can miss the glory of God right in front of us because we have our own agenda. We have our own desires. We have our own exaltation in mind. These men are standing there like, hey, Jesus, do you hear these kids? They're saying that you're, you know, Hosanna, that you're the son of David. Stop them. That's basically what they're saying, right? Imagine these kids. They're probably young men that came in to the temple for the first time for Passover. And they're like, this is so cool. The first time we're coming to Passover, here's the Messiah. They're like celebrating these young kids. And Jesus says, basically, he acknowledges two things. One, I hear them, which is awesome. Jesus hears the, the worship of these little kids. He says, and secondly, they're correct. He's basically, he quotes them. It's uh, Psalm 8-2, where, where it says, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. The idea in the psalm was that God is seen, the glory of God is seen in just the life and the being of an infant baby. You look at an infant baby, right? And you're just like, how is this all working? <laughs> like, just even a cry of a baby. As frustrating as, it, as a parent, you're like, ah, oh, no more crying, right? But you're like, that's crazy. This baby's telling me it needs something. That glorifies God that he invented life. And so in this case, Jesus takes that phrase and says, out of the mouths of these babes, they're, God's glorified because it's true. I am the, the one who's here to save now. And it's such a crazy reminder because the, the religious people that were supposed to know everything about the Bible, the scribes, right? They totally missed the Messiah. Here are these innocent young kids, just children. They have better theology, better doctrine than the religious leaders. And it's because they have faith. The lack of faith, it doesn't matter how much you know of scripture or think you know of scripture. Jesus told the religious leaders in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me, right? So in other words, you think you know everything, but they're actually speaking of me and you don't know me. What good is it if you're gonna study the Bible and not know Jesus? He says, these young kids, they they're barely, they're young. They're just showing up to Jerusalem for the first Passover, maybe. They're 12 years old, 13 years old, and they're worshiping me. Man, you need to be more like these kids. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples, be like children, childlike faith, right? Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will not see the kingdom of heaven, Jesus told his disciples. And so in this case, it's just so clear, man, if you don't have faith, you're gonna miss Jesus. But did you see in verse 17, Jesus left, he went to Bethany. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He doesn't stay in Jerusalem any night during the Passion Week, right? Until, until Passover, that he gets the, the room. But from what we know, he doesn't reside there because there's no faith in him. There's no belief in him. He goes to Bethany. And you know who lived in Bethany? 
was Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They believed upon Jesus. They saw personally. Lazarus definitely believed in Jesus. <laughs> he used to be dead. Now he's made alive. This is us. We once were dead, but we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. And see where that faith is, that's where Jesus is. I know I've said it, I had to say it again, sorry, it's my little catchphrase today, but Jesus resides where faith abides, right? So where faith continues, Jesus will be there. He says, I'm not staying in Jerusalem. <laughs> I'm gonna go to Bethany. I'm gonna go stay there tonight because the people that I'm gonna fellowship and be with are the people that have personally known my power and have received me as King and Lord and Son of God, amen? Let that be us. God forbid if we study the word and we don't actually know that Jesus is King. God forbid we study the word and don't obey his word. <laughs> like we should go out in such confidence that man, if Jesus said it, it's gonna come true. And Jesus proved that he is King Jesus by perfect prophecy. And he's shown it time and time again through each and every one of our lives. Everyone that put their faith in Jesus, you know, beyond the shadow of that, you know that he is King Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we just thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace and for your love, Lord. And Father, I just thank you for my friends, my brothers and sisters here, Lord. I pray that you just bless them as you call them out to do maybe very different things from one another, but all of it's for your glory. Lord, I pray that they would just trust in you, seek you in all things, Lord. And I pray for our brothers and sisters online. Lord, I pray that you just bless them, Lord. And I pray right now for just anyone here that has not put their trust or faith in you, Lord Jesus. Anyone online that may be listening that have not put their faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they would receive you. What a beautiful day, Palm Sunday, Lord, that they would allow you to enter into their hearts today, Lord. Father, I, I, I pray that they would just repeat this prayer after me. If they want to begin that relationship, they would repeat after me. They would say, Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins to give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.